Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa the voice the African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figili Lingwati. In our top stories, World Economic Forum on Africa calls for active and responsive African leaders. Algerians head to the polls today to elect the country's new parliament. And South African parliament condemns Mkhitama's outburst. In economics news, WEF Africa 2017 taking place in Durban. And in sports news, speculation rife on Bafana Bafana coaching position. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The Constitutional Court in South Africa has agreed to your position party, the UDM's case, for a secret ballot to be used in Parliament's motion of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma. The Con Court has set the date for the 15th of this month. Both Zuma and the National Assembly Speaker, Palek Gambete, had argued against the UDM, pointing that the rules of Parliament did not approve or did not provide for a secret ballot in a no-confidence vote. The motion was to have been debated on the 18th of April, but Parliament agreed to postpone it until the Constitutional Court case was resolved. Some Opposition parties believe the vote against Zuma could have a chance of success if it's held by secret ballot. The leader of Nigeria's militant group Boko Haram has reportedly been injured and one of his deputies killed in an airstrike. Abu Bakr Shakao was allegedly wounded in the bombings carried out by two Nigerian Air Force jets in northeast Nigeria last Friday. This is the fourth time a report of Shakao being struck during military operations has resurfaced. Reports of his death came up in 2013 and 2014, which were immediately debunked through a video message from Shakao himself. Back to South Africa, the Acting National Police Commissioner Khumutu Pahlane has reiterated that security threats against the former chairperson of the African Union, Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma, warrant her being guarded by the Presidential Protection Unit. Pahlane was briefing Parliament's Portfolio Committee on Wednesday on various police programs, including protection and security services. He was pushed by MPs to justify Tlamini Zuma's continued protection by the unit. Pahlane says the assessments have confirmed Those threats did not uh, de-escalate beyond uh, the end of a term. And that is why uh, during that uh, month, which uh, ordinarily would have terminated, the assessment was done, informed by 
the latest developments, the threat around, around her. And her protection continued subject to the finalization of the threat assessment. United States President Donald Trump has expressed optimism that a peace deal between Israel and the Palestinian Authority could be reached within his lifetime. He was speaking after welcoming Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas to the White House in Washington. I welcome President Abbas here today as a demonstration of that partnership, that very special partnership that we all need to make it all work. And I look forward to welcoming him back as a great mark of progress, and ultimately toward the signing of a document with the Israelis and with Israel toward peace. We want to create peace between Israel and the Palestinians. We will get it done. We will be working so hard to get it done. It's been a long time. For his part, Abbas expressed hope that under Trump's leadership, they can achieve a historic peace treaty. Mr. President, it's about time for Israel to end its occupation of our people and of our land for after 50 years. We are the only remaining people in the world that still live under occupation. We are aspiring and want to achieve our freedom, our dignity, and our right to self-determination. And we also want for Israel to recognize the Palestinian state just as the Palestinian people recognize the state of Israel. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the governments of Nigeria and South Africa have failed to implement consistent economic policies that attract foreign investment. Experts gave updates on Africa's two biggest economies at a session at the World Economic Forum in Africa, currently underway in Durban, South Africa. They say both countries are failing to give clear signals on what their economic policy are and this is making it difficult for investors to do business with them. Amina Akram reports. A panel of experts say Nigeria and South Africa need clear long-term economic policies to boost growth. They say both countries also need to eradicate corruption. Both South Africa and Nigeria account for 60% of sub-Saharan Africa's GDP. The two are also facing a series of economic challenges as a result of failing commodity prices and slow demand from China. Haruki Hayashi's executive vice president of Europe and Africa, Mitsubishi. What I can tell you probably is the uh, consistency and probably a stability of the running of the policy once it's been implemented. That will certainly attract a lot of uh, foreign investors uh, to continue to be involved. In January, Fitch Ratings Agency downgraded the outlook on Nigeria's long-term debt to negative from stable. 
tight foreign liquidity and low oil production has contributed to Nigeria's first recession since 1994. Like South Africa, it expects limited economic recovery this year with growth of 1.5%. Danladi Farhagen is CEO of Verod Capital Management in Nigeria. Um, Nigeria, of course, is completely commodity dependent from oil, basically. Um, but I think two other things were, were largely instrumental in the decline that we've seen in Nigeria. One is just, along with the commodity crash, there was also militant activities with the pipelines in Nigeria, which dramatically reduced the oil production and therefore revenues to the federal government. And 90% of the federal government's revenues of foreign exchange comes from oil. So that was a massive hit to the government. And the second is just a failure of the previous administration, I believe, to diversify the Nigerian economy. And so we were, you know, largely a, an, an elite consumption-driven economy. Godfrey Kena is CEO at Industrial Development Corporation. Why are we here? I think for me it's the pace in which we've really tried to drive intra-Africa trade. Uh, we've relied largely on uh, Europe and, uh, and, uh, and America, on the West. So when those economies have been uh, slowing down uh, for various reasons, we've been affected. Had, had we, we've spoken about what should be done, but the implementation for me has not been at the level where it is. Kuseni Dlameni is chairman of Masmat Holdings. He says South Africa needs to look beyond the recent downgrades and start having a conversation about an investment-grade recovery plan that is vigor. He says South Africa can learn from Nigeria's government's growth and recovery plan from recession, which is showing some green shoots. We have ex- lots of examples of countries that have been through this. Some have managed to get out of it quicker than others. And let's benchmark ourselves and look at international best practice experiences that we can emulate and be able to get out of it. Beyond that, the, we've got strong institutions, strong parties you know, across the political landscape in, in, to the point that I think also in Nigeria as well the politics is coming back quite nicely. There's more stability. There's a new plan that the Nigerian government has announced. And I think by and large we can be able to pull ourselves up and get back to investment grade. The experts say Africa should look at protectionism as an opportunity to grow its own industries and promote intracontinental trade. I am Amina Akram in Durban. Algerians are heading to the polls today to elect the North African country's new parliament. The elections will be taking place despite concerns over what may be a lower voter turnout. A two-party alliance led by President Abdelaziz Bouteflika's National Liberation Front dominates Algeria's parliament and will face an Islamist opposition organized in two main coalitions in a bid to regain ground five years since the worst electoral defeat in their history. Channel Africa spoke to the ambassador of Algeria to South Africa, Abdel Nossier Belad, about the polls and what they mean for the Algerian people. Election that will take place tomorrow, 4th of May, are very, very important to the Algerian people, and this for many reasons. First of all, you know that uh, last year, the Algerian constitution had been revised for 
more democracy, the deepening the good governance, and for this reason, the, this new parliament that will be elected will be in charge of implementing, adopting laws for uh, translating the amendments of the constitution. This is uh, this is really crucial. Secondly, uh, as you know, Algeria is engaged in uh, transformation of its uh, economy toward diversification to be less dependent uh, on hydrocarbons, for example. This, it means that uh, many laws will be adopted to create all the necessary atmosphere and conditions for this uh, new and uh, modern economy. We adopted also uh, last year what we call the new uh, economic growth model. This is a very big endeavor for the Algerian people as uh, the situation of the country is concerned and also the daily life of the Algerians uh, will be uh, concerned. Now, Ambassador, the country is uh, currently grappling with a deep financial crisis, as you have mentioned, uh, because of uh, a drop in oil revenues and and amid criticism from people who say the government has failed uh, to keep its promises. Ahead of the elections, the campaign was somewhat shunned by some Algerians who seem to have rather paid attention to the ongoing French elections. Do you think these polls will garner more than 50% turnout? Uh, I am I am sure that the, all the Algerians are conscious of this challenge. Uh, now, if they also, uh, the Algerians are interested of the experience of another country, it, uh, it could happen. But I would like to say another thing. There is a, a tradition that in Algeria, the election that uh, mobilizes the maximum of people is the presidential election. We should look at, yes, at the, uh, the itinerary, the historical experiences of Algeria since the independence. For, uh, for this reason, because the, that sources, they cannot criticize Ab- Algeria about the transparency of, of uh, this election because we improve the condition of the parliamentary election by establishing an independent electoral commission by opening the, the exercise for the observers from the European Union, from African Union, the United Nations, Arab League organization of Islamic Conference and, uh, and so on. How would you yes. respond to opposition parties uh, that have been calling on Algerian people to boycott uh, these uh, elections? How would you respond to that? No, first, my brother, when you, when you talked about opposition, uh, if there is one or two parties in Algeria, we have dozens of political parties. Uh, just by reacting immediately uh, because uh, I saw the list of uh, the political party two of the historical and the main and the main political parties of opposition are uh, are part to this election. Now, this uh, crucial election, Ambassador, comes as President uh, uh, Abdelaziz Bouteflika's health has deteriorated and some are saying his political future hangs in the balance due to the ill health. President Bouteflika, of course, is from the ruling uh, the National Liberation Front. There is also concern uh, around the surge in prices on the local markets. Does 
President Bouteflika have any future ambassador in Algerian politics? You know, President Bouteflika is leading the country, is uh, ruling the, uh, the country, and did he have about a vacuum of power in Algeria? No. Secondly, uh, you know, the stability of Algeria, the stability of the institutions of Algeria are is so strong that the, uh, Algeria is continuing its uh, trip, its uh, deepening the development, the democracy regularly, and this one of the other uh, subjects of uh, some uh, sources that I was talking in the beginning, they were talking uh, about. As far as that was Abdel al Nusir Balaj, Algerian ambassador to South Africa on the line from Pretoria, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbela Munjelele. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 1932. Then public enemy number one in the United States of America, Al Capone, was jailed for tax evasion. That was today in history in the year 1932. <music> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now director of the FBI in the United States says it makes him mildly nauseous to think his organization might have had some impact on the U.S. presidential election last year. After closing an investigation into candidate Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server in July last year, James Comey sent a letter to congressional lawmakers on October the 28th, 11 days before the election, announcing that the investigation was being reopened. Nine days later, three days before the election, he revealed that the original decision not to prosecute would stand. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The FBI Director James Comey was testifying before a Senate Judiciary Committee that has oversight over his department a day after Hillary Clinton told an audience here in New York that his actions before the election definitely had an impact on her losing to Donald Trump last November. It wasn't a perfect campaign. There is no such thing. Um, but I was on the way to winning until the combination of Jim Comey's letter on October 28th and Russian WikiLeaks raised doubts in the minds of people who were inclined to vote for me but got scared off. And the evidence for that intervening uh, event is, I think, um, compelling, persuasive. Uh, And so 
We overcame a lot in the campaign. We overcame an enormous uh, uh, barrage of negativity. The director defended his actions, arguing that concealing the reopening would have been catastrophic, and that with hindsight, he'd make the same decision again. To restart in a hugely significant way, potentially finding the emails that would reflect on her intent from the beginning, and not speak about it would require an act of concealment, in my view. And so I stared at speak and conceal. Speak would be really bad. There's an election in 11 days. Lordy, that would be really bad. Concealing, in my view, would be catastrophic, not just to the FBI, but well beyond. And honestly, as between really bad and catastrophic, I said to my team, we've got to walk into the world of really bad. I've got to tell Congress for the election. So on October 28th, he sent letters to members of Congress informing them of the renewed investigation, a letter that was immediately leaked, becoming a huge part of the pre-election narrative. Comey explains his final decision with investigators not to prosecute Clinton on November 6th, three days before the election. They found thousands of new emails and then called me the Saturday night before the election and said, thanks to the wizardry of our technology, we've only had to personally read 6,000. We think we can finish tomorrow morning, Sunday. And so I met with them. And they said, we found a lot of new stuff. We did not find anything that changes our view of her intent. So we're in the same place we were in July. It hasn't changed our view. And I asked them lots of questions. And I said, okay, if that's where you are, then I also have to tell Congress that we're done. Look, this was terrible. It makes me mildly nauseous to think that we might have had some impact on the election. But honestly, it wouldn't change the decision. Everybody who disagrees with me has to come back to October 28th with me and stare at this and tell me what you would do. Would you speak or would you conceal? Comey also confirmed to the committee that there was an ongoing investigation into possible collusion between associates of Donald Trump and Russia. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now go back in time to today in 1978. South African Defense Force, SADF, attacks a Namibian refugee camp in Kasinga, Angola. That was today in history in the year 1978. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. The South African Parliament has condemned the disruption of a joint committee meeting allegedly by the leader of Black First Land First, Andilim Glitama. The BLF was in Parliament to make a presentation on the transformation of the financial sector. Glitama is alleged to have verbally attacked ANC MP Joanne Fubbs, calling her a fascist and threatened to assault Finance Committee Chairperson Yunus Karim. Lulama Madya has more. The Finance and the Trade and Industry Committees had a joint meeting for public hearings on the transformation of the financial sector. An altercation ensued between Andile Mutama and Finance Committee Chairperson Yunis Karim after he allegedly called Joan Fabs a fascist. Karim says the altercation was unfortunate. 
He says all committee members were deeply offended by Mngatama's comments and the abusive language he used. The incident was uh, rather unfortunate, but I think it reflects the challenging and polarized uh, nature of our society at present. Um, Obviously, as MPs, we must allow civil society organizations and members of the public to speak freely in hearings and to allow them to criticize us. That's fine. This is, after all, their parliament, and we have to listen to them. But at the same time, participants in public hearings must observe at least a minimum uh, decorum. And uh, Mr. Andilem Kakama was simply refusing to do that. He referred to co-chairperson Joe Fabs as a fascist and was constantly abusive. Mletama has admitted he used the word fascist, but denies that he directed it at Fabs. He added that Karim should have stopped him from continuing with his presentation and should not have raised the matter only at the end. He accused Karim of protecting the interest of white monopoly capital. It was shocking to see that at the end, uh, Karim decided to be uh, threatening, uh, decided to uh, be disruptive. He disrupted the whole uh, uh, closing portion of that conversation today. Uh, in our view, is he tried to do it, he did that because he wanted to divert attention from the fact that we had made a very I think, a powerful presentation on why there must be radical economic transformation and why President Zuma is correct and why we need to support the call for land expropriation without compensation. Parliament has condemned the disruption of the Joint Committee meeting, allegedly by Mutama. Spokesperson for Parliament, Mloto Motapo, explains. We have noted, we've discussed, and uh, we condemn strongly the behavior of uh, Mr. Mutama which uh, entailed uh, disrupting the committee meeting for about 20 minutes, uh, racially abusing the co-chairperson, and also refusing to uphold and to follow or to be governed by the decorum of uh, the the committee meetings. Uh, His behavior is, is, uh, is deplorable as uh, it is in flagrant uh, breach of the open and democratic culture. It says it will investigate the incident and assess what further steps should be taken. Lula Mamakia in Parliament. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, South Africa's Defense Minister Nusivua Mapisa Ngakula has expressed concern about the ailing infrastructure used by soldiers deployed on the borders of South Africa. The minister monitored border control operations at Mbuzini, where the borders of South Africa, Mozambique and Swaziland meet in eastern Mpumalanga. Vusitwala reports. Fighting cross-border crime and ensuring that the country's borders are well protected is a daily challenge faced by members of the South African National Defense Force. Members of the SANDF are always seen patrolling the borderlines in groups carrying rifles. The soldiers are guarding a damaged defense 
which has partly collapsed. In some areas of the borderline, criminals have even cut the fence to allow for stolen vehicles to easily cross the border. In some cases, even the border fence lines are stolen. Soldiers have closed some of the openings. However, Minister Mapisa Ngakula says lack of resources is a big problem. There's complaint about the very infrastructure on the borderline, where our soldiers live and where the police live. These are things which are done not by us, but by another entity of government. This for me says maybe out of excitement when we came into government, there are decisions which we reversed. There are things we should have known that the Defence Force is one of those big entities which is a state within a state in terms of infrastructure and resources they need. But what did we do? We took some of the powers they had, gave them to other government departments, and of course, in terms of their priorities in those government departments, they don't see the need why they should prioritize the South African National Defense Force to to facelift or even to repair the infrastructure. Mapisa Ngagula says more members of the Defense Force are to be deployed in the eastern parts of the country's border with Mozambique, with special focus on the Kruger National Park. In order for us to be able to deploy the full 22 companies, we just have to juggle around and reprioritize, see where we can take, maybe from goods and services. You know that in the past, the borderline was well fenced to a point of having electrical fence, and the fences were lowered. Now we need to have other ways of fencing, protecting, of ensuring that we identify where the borderline is. Despite all the challenges faced by the soldiers deployed in the borderlines, criminal activities that have a negative impact on the country's economy are being kept. A member of the SANDF, Private Chunungwa, elaborates. We are deployed at uh, Macadamia military base. We are deployed from 6 March until 6 October 2017. So far we've arrested 206 undocumented personnel crossing the border from Mozambique um, into South Africa and Switzerland. So now we've arrested 206 undocumented personnel. Then the states also have contributed the Dacha, the stolen vehicles. We are on 10 million statistics success. The SANDF says the country remains well protected despite all the challenges it faces. Amvusi Twala in Buzini on the border of South Africa and Mozambique. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So... If you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline Somali President Muhammad Abdullahi Muhammad Fumaju has cut short an official visit to Ethiopia to return and participate in the burial of the youngest ministers in government. Abbas Abdullahi Sheikh Saraji was mistakenly shot by government forces who mistook him for a militant. The Constitutional Court in South Africa has agreed to hear opposition party the UDM's case for a secret ballot to be used in Parliament's motion of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma. And the leader of Nigeria's militant group Boko Haram has reportedly been injured and one of his deputies killed in an airstrike. Those are the stories making headlines. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now the annual Society for Endocrinology, Metabolism and Diabetes of South Africa Congress that kickstarts today in Johannesburg will share the latest clinical guidelines for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, the most common form of the disease in South Africa and globally. Among the speakers at the four-day meeting is the well-known Professor Robert Chilton, who is a medical doctor from the United States and a prominent international expert on cardiovascular disease and diabetes. He joins us on the line to discuss this further. Now, Dr. Chilton, thank you so much for joining us. How important are such meetings in addressing issues in the field of cardiovascular disease and diabetes? Well, I think it's really important, and, and I think the the organizers of this meeting ought to be congratulated. The, uh, this is a very tough topic. The reason it's so important is because most people have children. If you want your children to live a long time, the most important thing is lose weight and exercise. As far as new agents go, there has been a lot of new things that have developed in the last probably a uh, couple of years that we didn't have. I'm an interventional cardiologist, and I work primarily uh, in the surgical arena trying to fix hearts that actually have diabetes and certainly many people that don't have diabetes. But since the last 20 years, uh, we didn't used to see probably a few cases a week of diabetes that would come to the operating room for heart surgery. And now it's almost um, 60 or 80% of our cases per day. Uh, and it's difficult to fix uh, diabetes because it's so rampant throughout your entire body. It's like advanced atherosclerosis or hardening of your arteries. It's getting to where now children even are starting to have trouble much earlier in life. And for an example, 
in the year 2000, if you had children, people estimate in Texas where I live and, and work, one-third of these children will be buried by both parents at the funeral. So it's not something that is uh, uh, very lightly taken. It's not something you can necessarily uh, do, uh, control with just, well, it's a perfect fix every time. It's something that you really need to do a lifestyle modification more than take drugs. Now, that being said, we have new drugs that have recently come into play that we've never had before. It used to be everybody that has diabetes is well aware they measure their glucose levels like a hemoglobin A1C. And if it's elevated, your blood sugar is high in your blood. That's a great marker. It's a marker of atherosclerosis and how really your body is taking a major hit from all of the glucose that's high in your blood and, blood and the lipids too. In the last couple of years, there's a new drug class that's come out that is changing the way we look at things. It used to be we take a statin drug to lower your lipids, and that decreased cardiovascular events. But never before did we have drugs that not only decrease your glucose level in your blood, but it also would decrease cardiovascular death. And that's what is being presented at this meeting. Uh, the drug class is one called a SGLT2 inhibitor. And it's simply, it's a drug that actually comes from the apple tree bark. And when you take it, it makes you urinate out sugar. And along with the sugar comes the actual water and the salt. And certainly here, most people are aware that if you eat a high-salt diet, it raises your blood pressure. Well, this drug not only drops your glucose, it also lowers your blood pressure. And at the same time, the advantage to a cardiologist is it decreases cardiovascular death. So I think it's a new, a new way to look at the treatment of diabetes. It's not inexpensive, but at the same time, it costs millions of dollars to develop these drugs, and so consequently, uh, it gives you advantage of having new advanced medical care. Now, Professor Chilton, the Congress that's taking place um, from today, are these uh, Congresses, do you generally hold these Congresses in different countries or in different continents? What's the idea behind these Congresses? And have you seen any results with regards to, um, yes, you've mentioned the new drug and the different approaches and ensuring that people understand the lifestyle changes that people need to make with regards to dealing with cardiovascular diseases and diabetes, are they, um, what's the word, um, you know, effective as to the level that you'd like to see uh, in terms of globally? Yeah, the Congresses are really important. The Congresses are all over the world. They're not just here. I travel all over the place. And, and I think the thing that is important about these Congresses is they need to be done in the area of where you're looking at that disease process. Uh, in this part of the world, there is a much higher disease diabetes population than in other parts of the world. So they will hone in and they will concentrate on just trying to help this group of people. So these guys are really talking about right here in this part of South Africa, what are we seeing, what are our problems, and what can we help to actually improve life and expectancy and things like that. Do people really understand what type 2 diabetes is and cardiovascular disease? 
I, I, I say again, I, I didn't misunderstood you. Do people generally understand what type 2 diabetes is and uh, a cardiovascular disease? Is there a good understanding or are people still sort of, uh, you know, in the periphery and not really getting the grasp of what these diseases are and what um, they entail and how quickly they can um, affect one's life or one's family's life? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I would suspect that most people in this area know what diabetes is, but if you don't, here's the problem that we see in the operating room, which is much more uh, uh, bothersome. Used to be uh, people with diabetes, certainly as people get a little bit more senior in years, diabetes was more common. It would pick up and people would say, well, you know, uh, the, the thing that we're concerned about certainly have more heart attacks, but what's happened now is that we are seeing a population of people that are starting to lose their limbs. Diabetes gives you such advanced uh, atherosclerosis or plugging up of your blood vessels that you'll notice that you don't have hair on your toes or your feet are getting slick and uh, that you'll see people walking around with amputations. And those amputations is because you have no blood supply that goes down to your feet anymore. That's one manifestation of diabetes. Another one, the number one cause of blindness, at least in the United States, is that you have diabetes. And what happens is in your eye, your blood vessels start getting to where they don't actually have the proper blood supply. And again, your vision starts to fade and you lose your eyesight. You see people with blind sticks around. Most of those folks have diabetes. Now, if you back that up and you start hitting people in their 30s, well, now you're talking about people shortening their lifespan up to 15 to 20 years. That means that when people get older and when they want to see their offspring and their children or their grandchildren, you won't be able to see them if you're even alive to do that. Now, in smoking years, back if you go out 20 to 30 years, the smoker people, the people that smoke, they actually ended up having heart attacks, but there were more focal, more uh, localized lesions in your body. And you could put stents in those and help a lot of those. This new disease of diabetes, which is not new, is very complex. It gives you generalized, your entire body gets eaten up with atherosclerosis, and you can't get blood anywhere. It's not just your feet, it's your kidneys. If you go and see people on the kidney machine, most of those people, are a good, uh, more than half of those folks, a lot of times have diabetes. And then if you ask how many people that have diabetes have high blood pressure because most people recognize high blood pressure gives you strokes. Well, 80% in our new trials. So diabetes is uh, very complex. It hits not only your eyes, your legs and peripheral circuits. It knocks off your kidneys. It knocks off your eyes. But it's not when you're 60 years old. It's now starting to approach in the 30s and 40s. So it's a serious problem. Uh, and I think one way that you worry about, uh, that you can see, you know I might be getting towards diabetes is obesity, not every time, but most times leads into diabetes. You'll see men that are pregnant looking. You'll see the central belly fat. 
that is atherogenic, and that is also associated with the onset of diabetes. Now, Professor Chilton, unfortunately we have run out of time, but this is definitely a topic that we'd like to discuss even further. So maybe once uh, the Congress has taken place, uh, which I think it ends on Sunday, we can sort of uh, give you a call and find out what, uh, you know, the end result was and what, uh, you know, time frames have been put in place with regards to monitoring progress going forward. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Professor Robert Chilton, who is a medical doctor from the United States and a prominent international expert on cardiovascular disease and diabetes. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. President Jacob Zuma will officially open the 2017 World Economic Forum on Africa later this morning. He'll also hold a bilateral meeting with the founding president of the World Economic Forum, Professor Claus Schaub. The three-day meeting takes place under the theme Inclusive Growth, Responsive and Responsible Leadership, attended by several heads of state, including Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe. Now, for more on this, we are now joined on the line by our colleague Benjamin Mushatama, host of African Dialogue, who is in Durban as we speak. Benjamin, good morning and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lulu. It's great to be speaking to you. Now, Benjamin President Jacob Zuma, what time is he expected to be addressing delegates um, at the forum this morning? Well, it is expected that around 11 o'clock, which is in two hours' time, South African time, that he will be speaking to the delegates. And uh, mainly, the main focus for him will be really, really, how do we get practical on the issues of opening up the African economy? And everybody's been anticipating this moment. I think it's going to be the central, central kind of address uh, that everyone has been waiting for. Yesterday, we had a couple of plenaries. And just looking back at yesterday, the big, big conversation that actually led the way was uh, Lindy Wemazibugo speaking really on the shortage of leadership on the African continent. And she was very, very critical on the style of leadership that we have in governance, in civil society, and also in the private sector. She was saying that the style of our leadership seems to be lagging behind in terms of international trends, and we need to really fasten the pace of how we're implementing programs on the African continent. So today, we'll see what uh, the president of South Africa, whose uh, delegation has been really leading this uh, forum this year, and uh, this seems to be the central moment for the forum. 
You know, Benjamin, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to chat this morning. But I sure. would like to ask you, um, you mentioned what uh, was spoken about, events that did take place yesterday. We have heard talks of inclusive growth, responsive and responsible leadership. You've just mentioned that uh, former DA leader Lindwe Mazibuga also mentioned the style of leadership. There's also been a call on the two biggest economies on the continent, which is uh, South Africa and Nigeria, and the fact that they are failing Mm. their their countries and uh, the continent as a whole with not really coming out and being straightforward with regards to their policies. Now, what were some of the other issues in terms of topics that dominated discussions at uh, the World Economic Forum? Well, that's the main issue, Lulu, that you're talking about, the fact that uh, South Africa and Nigeria have been actually seeing the economies lagging in terms of growth. But also, in that regard, everyone is talking about the reliance or the over-reliance of these economies on commodities and how do you diversify these economies to actually open more markets up. But also, what is also interesting is that the conversation that took place in Kigali seems to be also a, a conversation that's continuing this time around about technology and how it actually does create this inclusive growth. Central to the conversation is what's happening in Rwanda, what's happening in Kenya when it comes to technological advances. We know everyone is talking here about the M-Pesa mobile banking system, how we need to actually utilize these East African systems of technology and actually let them lead the way and show us how things have been done on the rest of the continent. Because when it comes to technology and advances, the rest of the continent seems to be lagging behind. And the red tape around that seems to be actually creating more more of a less of um, advancement in, in that regard. So technology, 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 technology. another issue. Sure. Benjamin, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but we will catch up with you, I'm sure, in the later programs of the day and tomorrow to find out exactly what is put on the table and what uh, developments will be uh, dealt with going forward. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lulu. That was our colleague Benjamin Mushatama, host of African Dialogue, joining us from the WEF Africa 2017, which is taking place in Durban, South Africa. I'm Tabisola Hoko for Channel Africa's Economic Update. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma will officially open the 2017 World Economic Forum on Africa later this morning. He will also hold a bilateral meeting with three founding President World Economic Forum Professor Klaus Schwab. The three-day meeting takes place under the theme Inclusive Growth, Responsive and Responsible Leadership. It is attended by several heads of state, including Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe. Speaking ahead of the meeting, President Zuma says they will use this platform to call for more foreign direct investment into the country. People talk today about the fourth industrial revolution. Now I'm saying Africa is placed in a situation where you can stress your imagination. Given the fact that it is a developing region of all the global regions, and therefore to come to South Africa, to come to Africa is what we need to do. We are no longer discussing theory in Africa. We are discussing projects. We are interconnecting Africa. We are developing infrastructure to make business easy in Africa. So the message is come to Africa. That's where things are happening. 
Meanwhile, the second day of actual talks will cover topics like partnering against corruption, reducing the digital divide, Africa's famine crisis and the electrification of the continent. Co-chair of WEF Africa, Rich Lesser, believes these engagements are valuable. I think that forums like this still play a very important role to highlight the ideas and practices and examples that can hopefully inspire people, inspire the leaders of today who are going to be here and listen to some of these sessions and inspire the amazing uh, young people and and others across the business and government communities to get ideas, to sometimes challenge the status quo, to sometimes pick up the ball themselves and try to run with it and, and, and push things forward. Australia warns that a push by activist investor Elliott Management to ditch a global miner BHP Billiton dual listing may be a criminal offence and was against the national interest. Elliott, led by US financier Paul Singer, wants BHP to spin off its American-American assets, uh, hand back money to shareholders and scrap dual listings in London and Sydney to consolidate them in the United Kingdom. BHP Billiton has vehemently resisted Elliott's push. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.35 in South Africa. It's at 10.31 in Botswana and at 9.27 in Zambia. 7.7 to the British pound, 9.1 to the euro. Gold on 1,000, $239. Platinum, $902 an ounce. Brand crude, $50.67 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoku. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with football news. UEFA has announced that the new penalty shootout system, similar to the tennis tie-break, will be tested at the European Under-17 Championship, which begin in Croatia on, Man- on Wednesday. Known as ABBA, the system is designed to prevent a team that goes second from being put at the f- psychological disadvantage of always having to play catch-up. Currently, penalty shootouts see Team A and Team B take five penalties, each in an alternating pattern with a sudden death used after that if the scores are level. And South African Football Association released a statement yesterday that they have finalized an agreement with a successful candidate after a lengthy process to take over Bafana Bafana. But Safa is expected to make an announcement in due course. Baxter, who is South Africa's uh, Super Sports United coach, is expected to be the coach, but he was non-committal after their game against Celtic. You're asking me then if I'm going to be the, the new national coach. I'm not going to fuel that speculation even more because I've just, you've just told me my players get affected, so I'm definitely not going to fuel that. And you, you have to accept that, guys. That I'm not going to. I don't want to be a part of fueling that speculation. You know what happens happens. I've got a contract at SuperSport. I'm happy at SuperSport. I'm working my tail off at SuperSport. Yeah, I was going to say something else, but that would have been very accurate. Uh, and so, until, until anything else happens, and I'm sure you guys will know it before me. So, And in Golf News World, number one, Dustin Johnson says he feels fine and has recovered from the injury which had taken him out of contention on the eve of this year's Masters Championship.
Feeling good, healthy, so can't complain. Um, you know, obviously, I haven't played much or done a whole lot of practicing, but um, body's all good. So, um, you know, I was, was, you know, glad to be back out playing again. Johnson, the U.S. Open champion, was favored to win the Masters title after victories in his previous three tournaments. No, it took about took probably three weeks. Um, last week was probably, you know, maybe last last Friday probably was the first day I hit balls and like didn't you know didn't feel it. But um, no, it was just bruised badly. I went and had an MRI. It was clear, um, no no issues. But I just you know bruised bruised it really bad. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Brap South Africa Raz and Shah today for myself, Lulu Gabu, producer, Ronald Peary, technical producer, Sitendulbu and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rajshine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Our Siddiqui Sayabad takes us to the top of the hour for more news on Africa Rise and Shine. Je suis fou de toi. Tu vas te dire, 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 t